Hello and welcome to The Point of Everything. My name is Ono Sullivan and today I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by my first kind of uh, um, lecturer, first like working in a university, Eileen Hogan. She's a lecturer in social policy in the School of Applied Social Studies at University College Cork. Eileen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Owen. Um, so, I mean, I was, I was just talking earlier, like, how, how do we structure this interview? How do we do all this? Because it seems like you're, you're doing absolutely loads at the moment. First of all, like, university is back, or UCC is back this week, and you also did a TED Talk um, at Collins in the city on Wednesday. That was one of two nights that TED was um, being filmed there, I guess. And like from from 2010 to 2013 and this is where I kind of first met you you uh wrote a thesis on cork music so that's a lot of things and just trying to explain it to everyone is kind of hard but i guess first of all um how was the ted talk on wednesday and if you if you want to explain what you were talking about okay cool um yeah so ted talks it was a tedx cork salon it was called so a team got together i think you have to get a license from ted talks to run um a series of sessions so they had one two months ago i think on vintage clothing cork loves vintage and the theme of this one was cork loves music so they had two nights down in collins um lovely intimate space for talking about music tuesday night and wednesday night uh, I was on the Wednesday night and I guess the reason I was invited was to talk to that theme of Cork Loves Music um, based on the research I'd done for my PhD. And so, uh, like, it, it was kind of packed both nights, was it? Yeah, it was packed, sold out well in advance. Um, obviously, Collins, for anyone who's been there, is a nice small space, so sold out means there were about 60 people there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Yeah, it was really busy and there was a really lovely vibe. They um, had a mixture of guests, so some people were talking, some people were performing and some people had a mixture. So the night I was on, uh, there was also Stevie G talking about his theme of music as a universal language. Um, the same night there was a music therapist, uh, Kevin, I've forgotten his surname. Um, he was talking about some work he'd been doing with stroke victims. Fascinating stuff. And um, Rosalind Steer, who's involved in Morning Veils and Crevice and various other things she performed. Rory Francis O'Brien performed. So, yeah, it was a lovely mix. Um, and so the thesis, I, I was just saying that uh, um, I was just reading an extract on the Ethnomusicology Ireland Journal, which you put up, which you were saying is the first kind of extract from uh, the thesis. And it's titled... Corkonian exceptionalism, identity, authenticity, and the emotional politics of place in a small city's popular music scene. And so people can read this. It's it's freely available on ictm.ie. And so is this uh, indicative of what the thesis was about? Yeah, so... Broadly, I'm, I'm laughing at you reading out the title now. I'm living up to the, <laughs> the reputation of lecturers being wordy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's a, a, it's a snippet of the overall thesis. The, the whole theme of my thesis was on um, music making and well-being. So I was looking at that through, I guess, the prism of the Cork music scene. So the overall thrust of what I was looking at was music scenes and local identity. Um, and mine was kind of a case study of Cork's music scene. 
And so it was for the, the University of Liverpool? Yeah, so um, I guess I started my PhD, I was at it a while, in 2008 I was looking around at where I might do it and um, although I originally was thinking about doing it in UCC, there isn't a big tradition, it's changing now, but there wasn't a tradition at the time of having a popular music studies in UCC. Um, just recently the first lecturer in possible in popular music was appointed. Griff Rolofson is his name. So that's a kind of a big change for Irish studies in popular music generally. Um, so I kind of looked a bit more broadly to see where I might do my PhD and I went to the Institute for Popular Music in University of Liverpool, um, which was established with the very purpose of kind of advancing studies in popular music as distinct from traditional music and classical music that there's kind of more of a tradition of in Ireland. And so was that all done online? Or were you no, over there I was much? over and back. Um, thankfully, Ryanair do a Cork, London, Cork Liverpool flight. So um, my flights were cheaper than it would have been to get the train from Cork to Dublin, which was handy. So oh, especially course, in the yeah. first, yeah, in the, in the first couple of years, the first four years, I'd say I was over and back quite often. But I guess with a PhD thesis, mostly the work you do with the university is meeting supervisors. So I had two appointed supervisors who you kind of work with and collaborate with in um, producing the thesis. Um, and so what kind of made you want to do this? I mean, have you always had an interest in music? Yeah, so um, I am a musician, more of a hobby musician. Um, I started playing violin when I was small. And I, you know, as most teens are, got into Nirvana was the band at the moment. I'm showing my age um, <laughs> when I was uh, in school. And I when I, I moved to Cork in, when I was 17, so that was in 1995. So you can really, really pinpoint my age. Um <laughs> to study music. So I was here in UCC as a music student and I kind of mentioned this at the TED Talks the other night. I was a terrible music student. I was skipping classes and uh, not very committed to my studies, but very committed to the Cork music scene and was just going to gigs all the time and really soaking it up. And yeah, like I suppose the music scene is what um, helped me to just really appreciate Cork City. And I kind of learned the city through the music scene, you know. Um, so... Then, ugh, long story short, I then went back and I studied social science in UCC and I got a job as a lecturer and I was put under pressure then to do a PhD. So I kind of thought about bringing together the social science and the music as subjects and uh, ended up, yeah, digging further into the local music scene um, for, the, for the thesis. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you've obviously seen it change, like the, the music scene in Cork and... So what was it kind of like when you were a teenager, kind of fir first in there, like around 95, 96? Yeah. What was um, that like? How different was it? I think there's a lot of continuity, really. Like, um, And even this came through a lot in the interviews I was doing. So the, the participants in the research were all kinds of ages as well. And some of them would have been really active at that time. So Joe O'Leary from Fred, for example, you know, they were kind of kicking off around 97, 98. Um, and... I think that's something that the research participants reflected on, that Cork always had a reputation for being fairly eclectic and um, just kind of doing mad stuff, really, and just having a real openness to experimentation and playing with different musical genres and just acting the Egypt a bit sometimes as well, but also, you know, all the time taking music very seriously. So 
I think it it probably had a lot in common. I mean, the spaces change and the places change and the people change, but the spirit seems to persist. If the, that makes sense, the dogged spirit. Almost. The dogged spirit, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's it's kind of a weird. Like I don't really hear many people talk about like Cork music in like ninety seven to I don't know two thousand and two or something. I don't know. Is this there's this weird gap that maybe maybe I'm just missing bands, but like you have kind of the heyday of Cork music. You know, Sir Henry's Nirvana played there 25 years ago and you you had the Frank and Walters and you had the Sultans of Ping and you had like these music festivals going on and everything. And then it seems it kind of died down. I don't know, was was there talk back then of, oh, I used to be so much better five years ago, six years ago? Yeah, I think people always say that. Yeah. They always romanticize the moments <laughs> that they enjoyed um, enjoyed their particular scene. Um, I think like around that time, so 97, 98, when I was kind of coming towards the end of my music degree, from what I remember, it was it was quite vibrant as well in that people were still invested in the kind of a the creativity of the city. And a lot of that was tied into people who were very active that time, particularly in UCC, it was a lot of it was located around the granary. Um, and around that time, like you, people like Killian Murphy, who was acting as a student in the granary, but also had his band, Son of Mr. Green Jeans, for example. I don't know if you remember. I've heard I don't of them. think I've ever oh, actually heard about them. They were actually really, what, really what, fun. What are they called? Son of Mr. Sons of Mr. Green Jeans. Okay. So Add they were the really active. Again, just kind of mad mental, mental music and quirky and yeah, experimental. I think they're reforming. Someone told me the other oh, night really? that they're uh, they're making a comeback. Not with Killian, but <laughs> um, so yeah, he was around, and there was a band. Oh God, I'll have to go into the archives. There was a band called Anomi, um, and the the lead singer in that was Chloe, and I've forgotten her surname. She does a lot of the sound engineering. Oh, okay, right, yeah. So you can root out old tapes of theirs <laughs> as well. I'm sure. So. There were a lot of kind of indie bands, I think, around that time. But it's true, it, w- it also coincided with um, the kind of the big moment of Henry's and, and, and dance and all. So you kind of, on the one hand, at that time, you had the kind of Britpop wars, you know, do you like Oasis or Blur? And that was your defining yeah. moment of how you could describe yourself. <laughs> or um, or there was kind of the, the dance scene emerging or happening. Yeah. And and so, like, did you go to Sir Henry's much? Yeah, I did. I mostly went, I was into indie music mostly, so I used to go to Freak Scene. So there wasn't so much live music then. It kind of it died out as a live music venue for bands, which it was kind of renowned for in the 1980s. But um, Freak Scene was the night I used to always go to, and it was always just packed, yeah. packed full, you know. Um, really brilliant space to be in, good fun, yeah. I only remember Freak Scene from like when when I started in college, like ten years ago, and it was uh, it was in um, uh, by the Brogue, you know, yeah. on on Oliver Plunkett Street, and I was just like, it's okay, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I guess it must have just been like just something completely new, like or yeah. or something like that, completely of itself in Sir Henry's. Absolutely, and like obviously, I was seventeen, eighteen when I was going there, and I had come from like a small village in County Limerick and had gone to. Tipperary town to school and like in terms of 
um, nightlife. It was fairly limited. It was, you know, charity stuff and that's it. So to be able to go to somewhere like Freak Scene where everyone there is just sharing this pure joy in the same kinds of music was, it was a great time. Loved it. And were, were the likes of the lobby and the Liberty, no, not the lobby, sorry, the Liberty Bar and pubs like the Donkey's Ears and stuff. These are venues that are always kind of associated with the start of the 90s. Were they still around and still a thing where people went in the mid to late 90s? Yeah. This is hilarious. This is like cultural history. I'm like yeah? a historian back in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this fable time. But you don't hear about the, the latter half of the 90s yeah, that much. That's true. what I think. Um, definitely, um, I was involved in the Sir Henry's exhibition that we had in UCC it's actually two years ago, which is kind of scary. Mm. Um, and the Liberty came up a lot when we were researching Sir Henry. So it was really associated again with the kind of the dance scene that people used to like get their gear on for going club and hit the Liberties and then over to um, the Weekenders and all of that in Sir Henry. So the Liberty was more associated with um, with the dance scene, I think. Um and the pubs then, I guess the really active pubs for live bands would have been the Phoenix and the Donkey's Ears, the Phoenix that was that's over next to the Donkey's Ears and Charlie's, that strip. Um, that was the spot. The Phoenix was where everyone, like most Cork musicians of that era, would have had their first gig in the Phoenix when they were like 15, you know. Um, so that was the spot for live music then. The lobby was very active, but mostly it was um, it was mostly trad. Yeah, yeah. At that time, yeah. It still seems like it's a venue with kind of quite a storied history. I know that there was a book written about it. Yeah, Magic Nights in the Lobby Bar. Yeah, it was that was beautiful. Like I used to go to a lot of trad music gigs as well, and uh, yeah, it was a great space. And so you you mentioned the uh, Sir Henry's exhibition um, that was held in UCC Library a couple of years ago. Uh, how did did that just kind of come up via the um, uh, thesis that you were doing? Yeah, kind of in a roundabout way. It was actually the brainchild of um, Martin O'Connor, who works in UCC Library and who used to go to Sir Henry's in the late 80s when he came to Cork as a student, again from Limerick. Um, and he was engaged in a Twitter conversation and people were reminiscing about the glory days of Henry's and the dance scene. And he made the point, oh, well, like it was an incredible space for live music as well and rock bands and people don't talk about that history as much. And online, Stevie G noticed this discussion and kind of weighed in and said, yeah, it'd be great to capture that history too. So that's how, that's what kind of sparked the idea of the Sir Henry's exhibition. And then... Uh, because it was happening in UCC Library, Martin was kind of keen to have an academic involved to kind of, I don't know, I get to to speak to um, the history and the social significance of it. Um, and Martin knew that I'd been doing my PhD in the local music scene, so he invited me in to be that person. Yeah, so it was kind of myself, Martin and Stevie G who put the thing together. And did you have any involvement with the recent exhibition that was in the library in the city, um, the Circa 91? Yeah, the fanzine one. I didn't, I wasn't involved directly, but I know who organised it. It was Siobhan Bardsley. Um, and she had been hugely involved in the Sir Henry's exhibition because Siobhan had just for the fun of it, taken loads of photos when she was a Henry's gore. So she had these incredible photos spanning, gosh, I'd say about 10 years of all different bands and 
club nights and everything and anything. So that's what sparked her interest. And I think her sister as well is making, the two of them are making a documentary about um, that period as well. So Siobhan had a lot, within her own archives, she did a lot of those fanzines and got really interested in um, doing another exhibition. So it was kind of something that was a spin-off of the Henry's. It was kind of nice because I guess the Henry's thing, um, it's not done so much um, and there was probably a bit of local opposition in UCC as well that it's kind of popular music is seen as this kind of frivolous, um, trivial matter, which obviously <laughs> I'm countering with <laughs> all of my being. But um, yeah, it's nice that it sparks those ideas that other things can happen too. And it was great for us doing the Serenity's exhibition that we were able to connect with other people that are doing kind of popular music oriented exhibitions and archives. Um, there was a guy called Jed, I've, I've forgotten his surname. Jez, sorry, Jez Collins, and he's based in Manchester, and he's doing his thesis now on um, popular music archives as well. He's got this mad archive over in Manchester. With the Hacienda and stuff like that? Yeah. Um, actually, sorry, it's Birmingham where he is. Yeah, so he's doing his on Birmingham. I think there's some stuff he's doing in Manchester as well. Yeah. It's funny that you kind of mentioned that, um, like, when you did this Sir Henry's exhibition a couple of years ago, that, like, it wasn't kind of being documented or it wasn't being archived and stuff like that. And then it just seems with that and then the Circa 91 thing, I don't know, has there been, like, a slight backlash among, uh, like, some of the musicians now making music? But there does kind of seem to be, I don't know, I think that Cork is a little wallowing in nostalgia. I don't know, do you agree or do you see it? Yeah, definitely. And that was... That was something that Stevie in particular was kind of keen to avoid that in the Henry's exhibition, that we weren't romanticising something that was now over. And we tried to stress that within the Sir Henry's exhibition that that period kind of gave life to new opportunities. You know, that it's not like, oh, the good times were Henry's and when it closed its doors, then suddenly Cork has nothing to offer anymore. But to look instead at like the kind of people that were involved in Sir Henry's and what they do now in terms of developing an infrastructure, I guess. You know, Stevie himself being very influential in kind of bringing forward like young rappers even now and, you know, seeing what's happening in terms of hip-hop being back and rappers being back. And, you know, there was um, at the TED Talks the other night, there was this young guy, um, DJ Phantom is his name. Mark is his first name. And I've forgotten his second name. Um, clearly, I'm not very good at second <laughs> names. Um, but he was amazing as well in talking about, you know, that you, you can see the roots of that happening in, in obviously, New York, um, but also seeing it filtering through into the Cork scene. And, you know, new stuff is happening as well that... Um, you know, music changes. We can't get, we can't wallow in it, as you say. Um, it's nice to document it and then park it and move on. Um, and I guess it was something that I was very um, conscious of when I was doing my thesis as well, that the people I wanted to interview that were people that were currently active because it could have very quickly become a kind of a social history of Cork's music scene. But what I was interested in is like what sustains a music scene in the contemporary moment. Why don't we get onto that? So what a simple question, what does sustain a music music uh, scene? If in I mean, fi yeah. in five words or less. <laughs> in one word it's the people. It's the people who do it and the people who invest their time and their energy and their their love for it that sustains it. Um like the way I've kind of articulated it in my thesis is that um 
there are three things that are kind of celebrated amongst music makers, music producers, and that's music for music's sake, music for the sake of the music community and music for the sake of the city. So those three themes came out very prominently when I was um, when I was chatting with people. And so what are kind of the differences between them? Well, one, I said music for music's sake is just people making music for the sheer joy and pleasure that is within music. So it's this kind of the intrinsic value of music as something that, you know, allows people to express themselves, um, a medium in that sense. Music for the community is then, the way I was trying to explain it, I suppose, is the values that music makers subscribe to. Um, And that's both kind of the music for music's sake thing, but also like relating to each other in ways that improves the well-being of all of those involved within the community. So it's about making sure that, I think in a way, people don't think of it in this way, but they tend to police the music-making community was kind of one of the arguments I was making, that um, people are very careful about protecting the Cork music community as something that is not carried away with bullshit and not obsessed with ego and I don't know a kind of a keeping it real thing that that's what the community is kind of centered on um and then in terms of the city it's about music contribution to just people's enjoyment of the city and music being a good thing for the city's nightlife and the diversity that is within the city and um yeah that kind of eclecticism again so does that make sense uh, it, it does make sense yeah I'm, I'm almost looking forward to just listening back to this and just being like okay yeah you know just kind of almost engaging with it more and like examining it more um so that's good you know that I I, I listen back to the podcast almost <laughs> for, my, for my own sake so I mentioned you started this in around 2008 the mm. thesis and did you have an idea then of what it was going to become and how it seems massive it was going to become as well Fif- uh, 53 people interviewed is that right yeah yeah, did I have a sense? I don't know. I don't think anyone going into a PhD, if they <laughs> knew what it was going to turn out to be, would willingly submit themselves to it. It does get very big. But like, that's a positive thing too. So the first couple of years, 2008, 2009, I was doing it as a part-time student. So that explains <laughs> to one extent why it took me so long. Um, the first couple of years, really, I was just digging into what had already been written globally about music scenes. Um, and just kind of figuring out, well, what is it exactly I want to focus on? So um, I really only had that thread of looking at music scene and local identity in the city. And then 2010, 2011 was kind of the first phase of interviews I did. I interviewed about 24 people in that period. Um, And I kind of thought I was done. And I actually moved away for six months to like write it up. And when I moved, that was 2011, I was kind of looking back um, from afar and I was looking over my interview data and I was looking at what was going on within social media and kind of keeping an eye on Facebook and Twitter and seeing what was happening in Cork. And it just seemed that there was a whole new spirit emerged around that time. Um, like you'd people like Mary Hickson took, do- took over the, the Cork Opera House and a lot of people who as far as I could see, kind of left after Cork 2005, 
it was a bit stagnant, I think, 2007, 2008. People just got pissed off with the city and perceived lack of opportunity and obviously coincided with the economic recession as well. So I think a lot of people left. But in 2011, for whatever reason, they came back and there seemed to be a new spirit. So when I, I came back, not having written up my thesis and uh, <laughs> went back into another whole phase of interviewing. And I think I interviewed about another 30 people then um, or the remainder anyway. 53 it ended up in total I've totally digressed and I can't remember what the question was oh did I know what it was going to end up as no yeah. <laughs> <laughs> obviously not um yeah you you that was something that I picked up while I was reading um the extract on on um the ethnomusicology website um you said how much of this quote will I read out in the contemporary scene, there is evidence of deepening self-confidence among DIY producers. I think you're talking about 2011 here. Yeah. Uh, even in the relatively short period of the ethnographic fieldwork, social networks in the local scene pulsed with energy. And it is important to note that both negative and positive changes impacted in the local scene. Given that the fieldwork coincided with the economic crisis, the metamorphosis is perhaps unsurprising. But it is interesting how the mood of the city altered quite rapidly. Um, I, I was also a kind of I was in Limerick for two years uh and I came back in, at the start of 2011 and for the next couple of years I did see kind of there did seem to be a lot of positivity and just kind of people doing it for themselves does it kind of feed into what it seems like people are talking about just that there is a lack of industry kind of you're not going to become massive in Cork that kind of seems what it felt like I don't know is that is that fair yeah I definitely found that too. Um, there was kind of... So on the one hand, when I was interviewing people, and, and that's why I talk about this idea of authenticity, that people kind of make claim to their own sense of being authentic music makers, that they're not in it for money and they're not in it for fame. And a general sort of feeling in Cork that um, nobody's paying attention to what goes on in Cork anyway, except for Cork people. So there's a freedom and it's kind of a sense of autonomy that comes with that, that people kind of go, actually, we can do what we want because we're not going to make money anyway. That's not really what's motivating us. So let's just go and do it. Hence the kind of the DIY ethos. And there was also a sense when I was talking to people that they felt that there were a lot of people making music in kind of the good times, kind of the Celtic Tiger period. And they were only in it for the money. You know, they were doing the cover bands, which which is fine too. They were doing cover bands and DJing and all this kind of thing, but they weren't people who had this deep love for music. So people kind of felt that the recession kind of ousted people who were like interlopers um, <laughs> and who were in it for the wrong reasons. And once those people were gone, that it created a lot of space and opportunity for people to just do mad stuff for the love of music, for the love of Cork and for the love of being with other cool people and i guess that that kind of feeds into the the second quote that i that i picked up about the uh cork scene you say the community purports to be and is experienced and is experienced as open relaxed warm supportive and friendly yet somewhat paradoxically the community is simultaneously laid back and highly regulated the local docs of which emphasizes community uh, community communal values of the community and music making as intrinsic goods governs and structures the community itself is that kind of basically what you were just saying that like yeah i obviously could have said it in a 
smaller words and fewer <laughs> words. <laughs> I've never heard of doxa before. That's, that's an academic word, I, I imagine. Mm. Doxa became an important one. So doxa is like, can I get a bit theoretical? I Please won't, do. I really won't bore people too much, <laughs> but doxa is a term from a theorist called Bourdieu. And I use, he's a French theorist, Pierre Bourdieu, and I use his work a lot to kind of think through ideas. So doxa is what he calls the kind of unwritten rules of the game. And he talks about like people being involved in any sort of practice. They sign up to the rules of the game and they have to learn the rules of the game in order to make it within the game, right? Does that make sense? So my argument about the cork doxa is that people will only be accepted into the music making game in cork if they, again, ascribe to those values I was talking about, that they have to be driven and motivated by the intrinsic value of music. So it has to be about the music first and it has to be also about doing things that supports the music community and is a positive contribution to the city as a sort of a inclusive and progressive space. Do, is that kind of the same as almost Cork as a clique or something like that? Like I think it, it I, there, there are elements of cliqueishness. I don't know what the word is. Um, it could be that. Um, and when I was talking to some people, they did reflect on that. Like um, Brian Deedy, for example, who's now obviously <laughs> broken into the Cork scene and beyond it. He was talking about his experience of moving from Skibbereen to Cork and saying that like it can be intimidating because the Cork music scene is such a community that the networks are really tightly knit. So you do have to work to get into them. The argument I was making in my thesis is that the work you do to get into them is by proving your values as being pure. So you have to prove that uh, you're doing what you're doing for the love of music. And if people kind of get the sense at all that you're kind of out for yourself and out for just kind of taking advantage of as many people as you can in kind of scrambling to your way to the top, that that's not really going to be countenanced. I guess, like, you don't want to name names or na or anything like that, and we won't or anything. But um, is is it would it just be a case of people would see someone as not doing music for music's sake, and they would just try and you know not ask them to do something else? Or is there a way that they kind of shut out that person? Or I don't know if that came up at all. You know, people talking about it for music for music's sake, but like, what happens to the person who isn't doing it for music's sake? Yeah, I mean. <laughs> Obviously, there's a good bit of interview data that's never going to see the light of day because, you know, you sit a musician down and ask them what's good about the Cork music scene and they'll tell you everything that's terrible about the Cork music scene and the people in it. So there was an element of bitching. Not a huge amount, I must say, but like people would talk about, even if they didn't name names, they would talk about negative experiences they've had, whether it be with other musicians or promoters or DJs that... Um, are in it for their own uh, ends. So, yeah, that's the way they talk about it. And I, the, the way I kind of um, theorised it again is that the way that the Cork music scene works, a lot of it, because there isn't that much money in the scene like it, and there isn't that much of a industry infrastructure, that a lot of um, the ways in which people work are on the kind of the exchange of favours. But in order to get a favour, you have to be seen to be deserving of a failure. 
failure, favor, not failure. So you have to deserve that favor or to be seen to deserve that favor before people are going to give you a favor. Right. So, so it's kind of like you have to do, you know, so many shows for free or something before someone will ask you to play a headline show or something like that. Is that kind of what you mean? To a degree. And it's not, not so much about doing shows for free, but you have to, you have to facilitate and support other people in doing things. Um, it might be doing a show for um, a cheaper price or it might be, you know, given a certain amount of free tickets or um, one person I spoke to, Ashlyn Fitzpatrick, she's a cellist and she plays with a good few bands around. And she was talking about, you know, when bands are starting out that she would do work for those bands, like as a session musician, for example, if they were recording, she'd do work for those bands for cheaper because they're new bands and they're just starting out. And, you know, she kind of it's an act of goodwill. Um, so there's an element of money involved, even so, but there's an awful lot of kind of um, benevolence involved too, and and altruism, I guess, doing things for non-selfish reasons too. Okay, and um, just kind of the big, I I think it's probably the biggest thing that comes up in in the journal article on uh, ictm.ie is kind of the idea of. Dublin versus Cork mm. and it is something that you kind of hear about all the time and then sometimes I talk to people who are like there's no such thing as a Dublin versus Cork thing I mean just talking to people did you get us like you obviously got a sense that there was and did that change from like um in the first phase of the interviews and then the second phase and now I guess I don't know if you see it um yeah, yeah, and I talk about that in the article. I do think it changed. It how people spoke about it kind of depended how how they were positioned and even how they saw themselves as musicians. So, some people who had um, who had a lot of presence on national radio, they weren't going to talk about it in those terms because they didn't feel like impacted by it. Um, some who were kind of just starting out or had bands for a couple of years were getting really peeved at kind of uh you know not getting stuff played on national radio or not getting a mention in wordpress or not being spoken about in the right kind of social media sites and that so there was an element of that but i think it did wane it changed people spoke about it less and less partly that kind of you know that kind of new spirit that i talked about around kind of 2011 onwards people were less bothered because they were more assured with what was going on and they were more confident in what they were doing themselves and kind of a didn't need that kind of national rec re level recognition or b we're kind of getting it anyway you know so it was it was really mixed some people were very angry and annoyed and not feeling that they were being seen um others were kind of going you know just you have to put in the work to be seen mm. so yeah it was mixed and uh, like you don't really mention kind of the influence of the internet, but I guess just in 2011 was when the likes of SoundCloud and Bandcamp started being big. I don't know, was it that people just started seeing more of a reaction just online to their music, which maybe hadn't been there before? I don't know if that came up. It did. And I talk about it a little bit more in one of the other chapters in the thesis. Um, people spoke about it in both positive and negative ways. So yeah, like there was definitely the social media seems to have kind of democratized spaces back then maybe it's changed a little bit now again i'm not i'm not quite sure but at the same time um people were kind of 
disillusioned by how much work they had to invest in self-promotion when it could have been about the music man, you know, that they were feeling exhausted because they were putting so much energy into Bandcamp and SoundCloud and keeping up with even MySpace was active in 2010, <laughs> tumbleweed now, um, and Facebook and all these sites. They were like, you just have to put so much work into constantly maintaining that presence that it can sometimes take away from actually making music. So again, mixed experiences in that. Mm. So, I mean, it, it kind of ends in, in 2013. And so, like, you wrote this journal article and then you said that you you said before we started recording that you're working on another journal article. Is it kind of just of that time or do you try and relate it to what is happening now or what's happening wherever? Um, I think part of the problem is the very slow world of academic publishing. So... Um, that article that's just been published, um, I submitted this time last year. Oh, really? And that's fast. Like <laughs> to get it published that quickly is like, oh, nice one. <laughs> Usually it can, t- it can take up to two years. So you submit an article and then they'll tell you, yeah, we'll accept it. Or that, that never happens. Usually it's, yeah, we'll accept it, but you have to change everything. Um, or we're not going to take it at all. And then you have to start all over again. So it could be six months from the time you submit an article to actually getting a yay or nay on whether it's going to be published. And then it goes into a queue in the journal for when it will be published. So it could be two to three years from the time of submitting something. So there's a problem even in that in being kind of reactive to what's going on at the moment. So even if I submit the next article oh, okay, and yeah, kind of yeah. update it, by the time it's out, it's going to be out of date again. Okay. So for my sake, in terms of publishing it, it's easier to just say, like, this is a particular moment in a particular place at a particular time. Things inevitably change for better or worse or in different kind of ways. Um, will I update it? I Like, I've kind of... I only submitted the entire thesis last year, 2015. So I was writing it up to then um, and graduated in July last year. So it's still very new to me, even though the the research data is kind of a little bit old, 2013. Um, I kind of took a step back from it in the last while. Just I don't want it to get stale in my own mind as well, but I keep going back to the same sort thing so if i do an update it would be in maybe 10 years i guess and looking back then and what's what's going on now yeah you'll probably be saying in 10 years man it's so much better now (laughs) so much better now um how how big is the thesis wordwise wordwise it's um i'm not sure exactly it's about eighty thousand words so that's the length of a phd thesis yeah yeah so i've read it and um yeah that's about it (laughs) <laughs> even can, even my mom hasn't read it like she can't even remember the title of it <laughs> <laughs> can, can so, people actually access it and read it for themselves yeah like i'd love to at some point publish a book and i'd love to do it locally like i'd love to publish it through cork university press because it is such a product of cork and people in cork um so i'm kind of reluctant to put it online because if it has been available online then they won't publish it but if people do want to copy, they can email me. I'll give you my email details and absolutely I'll send it on to people. Wow, that sounds good. So and then just coming back to the TED Talk, then can you just kind of you get asked to do these things, you know, do talks and presentations and everything. Can you just like, you know, just uh, what will I talk about from the thesis today? Like, do, do they ask you specifically to talk about something or, or are you just or do they ask you, do you want to do a talk? Yeah, I'll do it on 
this, this, or this. Yeah. Um, they just emailed me. Um, Eilish Dylan um, emailed me and said, asked me to do a talk. And she just said, this is a theme. And I said, well, sure, I've loads to say. So, yeah, I was preparing it. Like the TED Talks, it's very specific. You get eight minutes to do the talk. So it's um, I had to be fairly snappy about it. Um, so yeah, what I talked about was like, I don't know, the equivalent of one page within the thesis, I guess. Well, some of the bigger ideas in it. But um, yeah, I can talk whatever whatever I want. But um, yeah. And was, it, was there a slideshow or anything like that for the... No, I actually managed. I was quite proud of myself. I left the PowerPoint behind. So there was just me. Um, I did get a bit nervous, I must admit. Um, it's kind of weird because like... I'm used to walking into a lecture room with 200 students and it kind of doesn't knock much off me. But like walking into a room with 50 people in Collins is like much more intimidating. I don't know. <laughs> it's just knowing that people are there to actually pay attention, whereas you know <laughs> mo most students aren't. <laughs> um, and, and so what are you working on at the moment? Hmm. Good question. I've, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm terrible for taking on new projects. So music-wise, I'm writing an article at the moment with one of my colleagues, uh, Noreen Keane. On, it was something that came through my PhD research, but I couldn't include it in the end. So it was on the intersections between um, youth work and music education. So as part of my PhD research, I went and visited a lot of youth work organisations that have um, music projects particularly Youth Work Ireland Cork, which is based up in Grona Brawr. They have a great um, music project there and a rapper's project. So Gary McCarthy, GMC Beats, um, does a lot of workshops with the young people there. Um, and Rory McGovern and Ophelia McCabe, I don't know if you know them, they're local musicians. So, um, yeah, so I'm writing an article at the moment on that, Youth Work and Music Education. And then, like, the the style of research I did for my PhD was called ethnographic. So that's like observing cultures and kind of trying to figure out how people are with each other. And a lot of it is about kind of participant observation. Um, so going to gigs and stuff and just being out there and seeing what's going on. So I've actually transferred that into a new community, which is um, e-cigarette users, vapors. So I'm investigating vaping these oh. days. Which Moving involves hanging it. around in um, yeah. e-cigarette shops and <laughs> online spaces where people are talking about vaping. That's my new project. And uh, yeah, what else is going on? I don't know. I'm doing a kind of teaching and learning project thing as well. And yeah, there's a lot happening. And so when you say um, that you're writing these articles, is that just for specific journals or is it just kind of, kind of for yourself? Um, I, I don't, it's I don't for know my job. Yeah. So like in... When you're lecturing, it's kind of like there's three elements to our our roles. One is teaching. The other is research, which is publishing and that. And the other is like uh, community engagement. So doing stuff for the UCC community or for the broader community. So this podcast is community engagement. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So, um, yeah. So that's the research part. We're like expected to produce research all the time and to write all the time and to pump out journal articles which um i'm not doing as quickly as i should be but there you go that's because community engagement is so important <laughs> to me <laughs> wow no pressure with all that all that workload uh well i guess we'll leave it there thanks for an enlightening talk about cork music thank you very much for the invitation owen it was cool. fun and thanks a lot for listening folks we'll be back next week i guess <laughs> <laughs>